Hello, and welcome to our 2023 U.S. Life Sciences Regulatory Outlook podcast series. I'm Greg Levine, head of the Life Sciences Regulatory and Compliance Practice Group at Ropes and Gray, based in Washington, D.C. Earlier this month, I sat down with several of my colleagues from our Washington, D.C. office to discuss our expectations for the coming year. I was joined by Kelly Combs, Josh Oyster, and Beth Wyman from our Life Sciences Regulatory and Compliance Practice Group, and Margot Hall from our Healthcare Practice Group. We had a robust discussion that we are releasing as a four-part podcast series. What you will be listening to today is part four of that conversation, which was our lightning round covering a variety of topics, such as anticipated guidance on drug compounding, advertising and promotion, the redesign of the Human Foods Regulatory Program, and more. Last but not least, we're going to do a lightning round. We're going to go around the group and just see what additional thoughts people have on their minds for developments to expect in 2023. Why don't we throw it out to the group? Who would like to start? I'll start, Greg. And on the policy side, a few other things I'm keeping my eye on this year. Um, first, in the uh, CEDAR guidance agenda, we saw, as has often been the case in recent years, a number of compounding guidances. We also saw a number of compounding specific rules on the FDA's rulemaking agenda. It'll be interesting to see what actually comes out this year, particularly if there's um, a long-awaited guidance on the 503B prohibition on wholesaling. It's something that the compounding industry has been looking for for a while. Um, separately, new to the CEDAR guidance agenda this year is a planned draft guidance on the use of alternative tools to assess manufacturing facilities named in pending applications. This guidance stems from the pandemic where FDA was in many cases unable to inspect manufacturing facilities named in pending applications. And in certain situations where FDA deemed that an inspection was essential, um, the approval of those applications had to be held up until FDA was able to travel to the relevant location and inspect the facility. Um, FDA did try in many cases to exercise flexibility and use records requests, remote regulatory assessments, and these other quote unquote alternative tools to find a way to assess records from facilities, CGMP compliance at facilities, GCP compliance at trial sites, et cetera. Um, but it seems that FDA is moving towards formalizing a lot of these policies now that they've had some experience with them. So that draft guidance could shed more light on how those alternative tools are going to be used in the context of assessing facilities that are named in NDAs and the like. Thank you, Josh. Who, who would like to pick it up from there? So I'll weigh in, Greg, just for a moment. You know, we haven't talked yet about advertising and promotion. Um, certainly enforcement on the FDA side continues to be very quiet with only a handful of OPDP letters seen last year. We've also seen no major guidance documents since 2018, and there's nothing of significance on the FDA guidance agendas. We have seen FDA recently take increasing interest in the use of endorsers and influencers in advertising, as well as DTC communications. So it remains to be seen whether any OPDP ongoing research studies may ultimately lead to some sort of rulemaking or further guidance development. 
Also, uh, one of Commissioner Califf's priorities, as he's stated many, many times, is to combat medical misinformation. So this may not directly be related to ad promo in the traditional sense, because Califf's not necessarily talking about manufacturer communications here. But he has said at times in the past that medical misinformation has become a leading cause of death in the U.S. Um, So I'm very interested to see what FDA does, um, you know, in that respect. And on the topic of ad promo, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention it. We're still waiting on a, a much anticipated decision in the First Circuit in an old FTCA enforcement case related to advertising and promotion. Um, and that's the appeal of the criminal convictions of two former medical device executives, William Facto and Patrick Fabian. They were convicted of, on misdemeanor charges at a trial six and a half years ago. That conviction was upheld two and a half years ago. They appealed. The oral argument in the First Circuit happened almost a year ago, and we still have no decision from the First Circuit. Um, That decision likely to have some implications for FDA regulation of speech, the First Amendment, the interplay between what FDA can regulate and can't regulate. Um, So we'll we'll be watching that one very closely. Thank you. Beth, anything you'd like to add in in our lightning round? I think I I referred to this um, briefly in in my prior remarks about the impact of the much-discussed redesign of the human foods program. Um, And look, it's hard to know for sure, but we all know that SIFSAN, the Center for Foods, faced significant scrutiny in the aftermath of the infant formula shortage brought on by the shutdown of a, a plant and a massive recall of infant formula. And FDA was accused of acting too slowly on early complaints FDA conducted an internal review um, and suggested that its slow acting was due to inadequate authorities and and resources, but an external review found otherwise and suggested that the food program was plagued by leadership turnover and, quote, constant turmoil that led to, quote, indecisiveness and inaction. This led to um, the resignation of uh, Frank Yanis and the commissioner's promise of a reorganization. The question is, what is that reorganization going to look like? And FDA recently put out a memo um, with a a very high-level view on its plans. It looks like there's going to be creation of a new center for excellence in nutrition with the goal of elevating and empowering action on nutrition, science, policy and initiatives to reduce diet-related chronic disease and improve health equity. And then within that center, there would be an office of critical foods, which would manage the regulation of infant formulas and medical foods. Also, a new office of integrated food safety system partnerships is going to be created. And that office is expected to prioritize and unify FDA's work with state and local regulators in an effort to strengthen the nation's integrated food safety program as envisioned under FDA's Food Safety Modernization Act. Um, And the announcement of the reorganization of the human foods program also mentioned a reorganization of ORA. You know, again, it's it's, it's a little unclear what that's going to look like, but it looks like product centers, you know, so the center, the new center for foods, the center for drugs are going to have more of a direct role in setting the agenda the policy and, and prioritization of ORA more generally. And it looks like um, ORA is looking to strengthen its own internal expertise alongside and using um, center experts. So I think there's uh, going to be an attempt to align ORA and the product centers more closely. Thanks for that, Beth. Yeah, it'd be interesting if 
ORA Office of Regulatory Affairs, which handles FDA's field operations inspections, if that will be reorganized beyond just the foods program, because there was a reorganization not very long ago. And yeah. we're still, right, we're still sort of, you know, that still feels real, relatively new. So if there will be further changes to ORA now on top of the prior changes, just curious what those will be and what they're going to mean. And if we're going to have to relearn new acronyms and things like that as as we move forward. So we'll, we will see. Well, look, the last reorganization was about um, creating expert cadres in certain areas. So, right. I mean, maybe it's just going to be sort of more of the same. Not quite clear what more they would do on that because they, they do have those specialized cadres now, right? Maybe they'll organize it differently. But thank you for that. Before we close, why don't we talk about an interesting development from last year relating to device enforcement, where FDA dusted off some old authorities that it has and, and used them. And, you know, do we think that's going to be a trend? Josh or Beth, do you want to talk about that? Sure, I'm happy to take that, Greg. So what you're referring to is FDA's action last year to issue what's called a notification order under Section 518A of the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, as well as a proposal to issue an order under Section 518B of the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. Um, And that 518B is the part of the statute that authorizes Um, FDA to order repairs, replacements, or refunds of medical devices, whereas 518A involves a a notification order where FDA can order a device manufacturer to notify consignees of certain device issues. Both of these FDA actions stem from a recall by a large manufacturer of certain breathing assistance devices, and there were some significant um, aggravating factors in that uh, with that recall that that likely led FDA to take those actions, um, including uh, the company's effort to effectuate the recall and ensure that all affected consignees had been adequately notified. FDA found evidence that those notification efforts were, were not up to par. And FDA also had conducted an inspection of the manufacturer and identified some concerns related to the speed at which the company was addressing the underlying issues. We'll be paying close attention to what additional actions FDA takes with respect to this manufacturer and with respect to its use of these device authorities more generally. These are authorities in the case of 518A notification orders that FDA had not used in, I think, 27 years. And in the case of the 518B authority, it's something that FDA had never invoked, although it had been on the books for decades. So we'll be watching whether it was really the specific facts and circumstances of this particular situation that led FDA to invoke these authorities or whether it's part of a broader trend that means that FDA is going to be looking to do this more often with device companies. Yeah. And if we, if we roll the clock back to before the pandemic, just more broadly with devices, there was a pretty significant focus on things that needed to be done differently, perhaps with regard to device safety, regulation of device safety, particularly some pre-market, but post-market as well. And with the pandemic, it's not that the FDA stopped enforcing the law or stopped paying attention to device safety. It didn't. But some of those kind of more far-reaching or innovative or novel uh, types of policy proposals, some some continue to move forward, but others seem to have kind of fallen off the radar screen. And we're now starting to see, again, articles you know, in journals and so on, raising questions about device safety. So I wouldn't be surprised if uh, not just those particular enforcement tools, but other things are happening in the device safety and device enforcement area in the upcoming period. 
Thank you very much to our listeners for tuning in today. We will continue to provide additional news and analysis about regulatory developments and emerging issues from the federal government throughout 2023. You can access that information on our Capital Insights page on our main Ropes and Gray webpage, www.ropesgray.com, by listening to any of our Ropes Talk podcasts, including the past episodes of this podcast series, in our podcast newsroom on our website, or by subscribing to Ropes Talk wherever you listen to podcasts, including on Apple, Google, and Spotify. Thanks again for listening.